Welcome to Elevate. I'm so happy you're here with me today, and I cannot wait to share this episode with you. As an evidence-based coach, mentor, and entrepreneur, I'm obsessed with learning and personal development as it's transformed my entire life, as well as those I get to work with. And to be quite frank, it's literally the entire reason this podcast exists, to feel your growth, gain perspective, and acquire knowledge. So buckle up, friends. You're in for a treat. And as always, thank you for supporting me and the show so we can continue to elevate our own lives as well as those you share this with. Now, let's get into it. What is going on, guys? And welcome back. So if you noticed, I did go ahead and rebrand the podcast. So now it is labeled Elevate, which is one of my absolute favorite phrases. I've always wanted it to be ingrained in my business because uh, I want to elevate and expand your life. So that is why. And of course, the conversations that I have are not just going to be fitness focused. And so today that leads me to our intro of my client, Kenzie, and she is incredible, but we're not going to talk necessarily about her journey with me. We're going to talk about her journey before. So Kenzie, please introduce yourself for everybody and tell them a little bit of your backstory. So I'm Kenzie. Um, I live in Utah and which is a very, uh, faith based state. And I was, um, raised in this faith since I was little. So very much restrictions, very much, um, you don't do this. You don't do that. Always be you know, on your P's and Q's, my dad was very high in the church that is predominant in this area. Um, we have, I'm the youngest of five girls and one boy. And um, so that's, I was the perfect kid. Like even to this day, my mom's like, you were the perfect child. So um, growing up, I had all of that. And then I got into high school and decided that I was going to go against that faith and completely spiraled, got into addiction. Um, hardcore. The first time I went to rehab was the day after I graduated high school in 2005. And then I went to rehab seven times after that, became homeless, all that stuff. So that's kind of the basis of my story. Yeah, that's like the cliff notes. So I want to go into, I know that it was very faith-based. So what caused you to step outside of that realm? Like, where did you start experimenting and how did that come to fruition? So I'm not really sure. And that's what my parents always say. Like, what did we do wrong? And it's so sad because my parents didn't do anything wrong. Me being the youngest out of six kids, all of my siblings are amazing thriving like I think one of them touched alcohol once um so I don't know when it was I want to say it was in high school when I went into high school my teachers were like oh you're a and they'd say my last name you're a Franson what sport are you playing and I'm like oh I don't play sports (laughs) like my whole family was cheerleading basketball volleyball everything like that and I'm I, I'm like the odd man out. I didn't do any of that. So it's like, I felt like I almost had to make my own way. I had to make, um, I had to rebrand my name. And so by rebranding my name, I went the complete opposite of everything that my lifestyle up until that point was about. 
I think the first thing that really happened was I injured my shoulder. I had shoulder surgery and got put on painkillers. Mm-hmm. And at that point, cause I was so shy and I was so timid being on painkillers. I was able to talk to people and I was able to be like the social butterfly that the rest of my siblings were. And I, I really think that's what started it was like, this is me. And I was able to get out of my head for once. So uh, yeah, so I think that's something- really what spiraled. It was the pain was the surgery. Very interesting. You know, I, I do know a lot of people will say and, and people on medications for different reasons, but a lot of them will say like, you know, when I do this, like it just lets me kind of remove the analytical, logical overthinking mm-hmm. side of yourself. And it's like, I have yes. full permission to just exist. And here yes. I am and like, see me. <laughs> um, and that's interesting. And of course, like, I don't know a ton. I've been on painkillers like for 24 hours, I realized after my knee surgery, I was allergic to oxycodone. So imagine not being able to take pen med- pain meds for my surgery. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I just was very anti kind of heavy pain meds. And I do have yeah. someone in my family who was addicted to them. And so my mom being a medical professional, she was always like, I will handle your pain medication. Like they're very addictive. Like, you know, she was very, Mm -hmm. okay, yeah, you're good now. Like you don't need them. So if ever there was something in my family where that was, we were just always super cautious about that. Um, And I am very aware of like the tendencies that run in my family. So for me, like alcohol and drugs are just not anything that I really strongly dabble in because my Mm -hmm. biological father is super much, very much an alcoholic, um, Mm -hmm. his side of the family very much. So, and Mm -hmm. of course, like my aunt with that history of her, I was like, okay, like we just don't need to dabble in that stuff. And so, yeah. So it started with pain meds for you and you were like, okay, what did you do when you ran out? Like what, what was the next step? Cause it's only a certain amount. Right. And then it's like, yeah, yeah. It's only a certain amount. And that's very interesting that you say that like your family history, you know, your family history, So my mom and dad, both sides, my mom, her mom and dad, my dad, his mom and dad, both alcoholic addicts. So I was very much warned up until this point, but I have this, like, it's not going to happen to me. So it's, yeah. And I, it completely happened to me. So I was warned, but what happens at that point, um, so once I ran out, my dad had, um, has severe back issues. So he's fused from like the, the neck down two titanium rods on each side of his, uh, on each side of his back, that surgery happened in 2005. So I started stealing pain medication from him. I also started essentially doctor shopping, you know, like I was in pain, but I wasn't in as much pain I could have taken a Tylenol, but I'd go to the doctor and be like, Hey, you know, this hurts. And at that time, back in 2005 to I'd say 2010, there wasn't as much emphasis on it then as there is now. So you could in essence, manipulate the doctors into giving you what you wanted. Um, especially with, and I hate saying it, but especially with how prominent my family was in the area I was trusted I was you were because they were stand up very religious very like 
cut and dry types of yep. people. So you used that reputation and leveraged it. Yep. And I did for years after that, years after that. I mean, I years and that's exactly because everyone knew my dad, everyone knew my mom, everyone knew my siblings. So it's like, well, she's a Franson. She's not gonna like, this isn't, she's not manipulating this. She's a good girl. Wow. Like she, she hasn't strayed. And even, even my parents were like, they had no clue how bad it got because I was able to put the face on that I needed to at the times until, until I couldn't, but yeah, so it, was, it was bad. Do you remember mm-hmm. exactly yeah. what the pain med was? I think it was like Percocet or Lortab or something like that. Okay. Just, just something super, super interesting because most, and again, like, I don't know enough about these things. I don't dabble with them, but most people that I know, it makes them very tired. So it's interesting to me that that made you very like lively and like, yeah. Kenzie. Yeah. My mom cannot take a melatonin without like knocking her out. And that's, it's, it was weird. So I, I was clinically diagnosed with depression when I was in kindergarten. Okay. Um, I was put on ADHD medication when I was in third grade. Um, I was put on antidepressants, things like that. And those things deadened me. And I don't know why they just didn't work for me. Um, I completely advocate for them. And I think they, that people really do need to be on them, but they did not work for me. They brought me down to a place where I was a zombie and the painkillers was the only thing that like gave me energy. And of course it made me tired at at times, but it was the only thing that gave me enough energy and enough out of my head to where I could relax and get out of that like fight or flight mode that I had to show up a certain way to actually show up not authentically, but authentically enough as I could at the time of what I knew. Yeah. It's just like this, I have to fit in and I don't fit in and I'm afraid to be all that I actually am. And will I be accepted mm-hmm. if I am all that I actually am? And I totally yeah. get that. I think most people that are listening probably have some arena in their life where it was like, I just want to fit in and be accepted. So I'm not yeah. going to share this side of me because I think yeah. I like this side of me. And so I yeah. totally get that. And so yeah. you went to multiple different doctors, multiple different practitioners, mm-hmm. and then yeah. So it was that, where did it progress from there? And do you remember how old you were? So, um, I, so in high school, I would, I'd go out with my friends, I'd party, I would drink things like that. It was the painkillers really no one knew about. Mm -hmm. Um, that was my own secret. And that was my own shame that I wasn't going to tell anyone about because that was like crossing the line socially, um, drinking and smoking pot, things like that. Those were just like normal high school things that everyone could do. Um, so what happened after that was of course, so the first time I went to rehab, my best friend found out that I was doing painkillers and I don't remember how she did. It was probably like, um, I'd say maybe a month before graduation. So she went to my parents and told my parents that I was doing more than just drinking and smoking pot. Um, I didn't know this at the time. So my parents confronted me and essentially either go to rehab or get kicked out of the house. Um, 
I didn't have anywhere to live. I didn't have a job. Like I was 17. I had no clue how to live on my own. So of course I chose the rehab thing and went into my first rehab the day after I graduated high school. Um, at that point, I actually learned how to hide it better okay. rather than get my addiction under control. Um, so I met a guy that um, is now my ex. I dated him for five years and he was a meth addict. So that's why he went into rehab. Um, Did you I meet never him in rehab? Yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. I, like, I want all my- of the details. So all of this is very together. So okay. you dabbled yeah, in pain really- meds. Then we dabbled mm-hmm. in some other drugs. Yeah. You got to rehab. Mm-hmm. Okay. In yes. rehab, you met man. Yes. I met man. I met two men. So I actually met my former boyfriend and I met my current boyfriend okay. <laughs> who I now live with. <laughs> Okay. We will talk about him soon because I am now, now my coaching hat's on. I'm like, is this man good for her? <laughs> He's amazing. He really is. He's absolutely amazing. <laughs> okay. So, you so but he does play a huge part in this story. <laughs> okay, I'm excited. So in rehab, how long were you there for? So I was there, it was an outpatient rehab. So I got to go home and sleep and things like that. But the rehab, I want to say it lasted like two months and then there was aftercare. So I'd go there every day for, I want to say eight hours a day. Um, I had Saturdays and Sundays off, but I had to show up for like an hour for an AA meeting or an NA meeting, something like that. Um, test anything to make sure that you were clean. Oh yeah. 100%. Yeah. I was drug tested very frequently, very frequently. Did you go through any type of like withdrawal or detox? Not this time, not the first time I wasn't on it heavy enough to where I was addicted to where I was using it every day. Um, I would just use it socially if you can say that. Um, but no, I wasn't an everyday user. So I was able to just stop, but it was that my mind was running with, you need this because you're not normal without this Mm -hmm. sort of thing. So that was where it was like, and honestly, I can't say like, I went into rehab too soon because everything happens for a reason. And I never would have met Marshall and I never would have, you know, had the experiences with Ben that I had, but I honestly think I went into rehab too soon because I learned how to hide it and how to use better. (laughs) So that's what I want you to elaborate on. So, okay. The goal was this is a problem. We need mm-hmm. to fix the problem. And you yeah. went, this might be a problem, but it makes mm-hmm. me feel normal. Yep. So let me pick people's brain. Did you pick people's brains on how to so make that? At that point, I didn't totally pick people's brains. I was just like, well, what can I hide better? Like, what can I, what can I use that isn't going to possibly give me a felony? What do I, what can I use that I don't have to doctor shop for? Like, what can I do that isn't going to, that I can work on, that I can hide from my family that, you know, I can have clear eyes that I'm not nodding off on. Um, and so that's where I kind of started and I was interested in it, but all the hard drugs scared me like meth, heroin, those things, those words scared me. Mm. Um, 
so I was trying to figure out like, what's the softer drugs? What can I do? That's going to give me the same feeling that I'm not going to get hooked on. Um, but of course I was 17 and I was going to rehab with people who have been shooting up meth and heroin. No one really sends their 17 year old kid to rehab that has an occasional pain pill usage, you know? So I'm in rehab with like felons and some serious drug users and some serious alcohol users. And so it interested me in in what it was like what being and there was almost like a fantasy around it as well like you've lived life you've experienced life so I wanted to know those things like what is it like experiencing life on the outside and so it became like this fantasy for me it was very very strange very strange but I was very intrigued by their stories and you know I remember sitting in rehab and in anyone who's had an addiction with like needles or anything like that, this may be a touchy subject for them. But I remember sitting there and this girl, she always used a Dasani cat bottle to melt her meth or, or cook her heroin or, you know, something like that. And so her trigger was a Dasani cat bottle. Um, she couldn't use cotton like ear swabs or anything like that, because that was a trigger for her for heroin. Um, they told her, you know, you need to, you need to puncture the top of your Dasani cat bottle and put a straw in it so that you can't think of shooting up heroin. Um, and I won't get into like a lot of detail about how that happens and why a Dasani cat bottle did trigger her. But I remember looking at her and being like, that's gotta be the most amazing rush. And that's all I could think was like, I want that feeling. Mm -hmm. And that's where it, but I didn't get the destruction at the time because I have never experienced it. So it was like, it was just some fantasy for me. And so you carried that fantasy forward though, because at some point you did get to this point. And so what was the <laughs> next kind of phase of your addiction? So, um, I started getting into alcohol a lot more, um, pain pills a lot more. I became a veterinary technician and at the time they did not regulate. Um, so animals use the same type of pain medication as humans do. We have morphine, we have fentanyl, we have all that other type of stuff. Um, so I'm like, okay, well, this is, this is a free way for me to get high at the time they didn't regulate it. So I actually started stealing it from the vet clinic that I was working at. Um, and I started shooting up fentanyl. I did not like, I, the first time that I did it, um, I had no clue what I was doing. I'm completely shocked that I'm not dead, that I didn't overdose with how strong fentanyl is. Um, but that's essentially where it really started progressing was, was when I had free access to it. And I would shamefully, I would, um, replace the bottle 
with, because we always like regulated the milliliters and everything like that. So we'd always like pull it out in a syringe, make sure, you know, there were 200.5 or, you know, 20.5 cc's or whatever in it. Um, because we had to put it on a drug log. So I'd pull out everything that was in there, regulate what I needed, put that in a safe place for me. And then I'd refill that bottle with saline solution or something like that. Yeah. Did you ever get caught doing this? Yes and no. Um, so I knew that they were on to me at that point. Certain things were starting to be said, and I can't really remember what they were, but, but I knew like, you're getting to a point where you're going to get caught. Like, this is not okay. And I'd go up into the mountains and shoot like fentanyl and morphine. I literally have no clue how I'm not dead because I was completely alone. I was not uh, regulating it to my body weight. Like I was going to say, did you know anything? Did you know anything about dosing or like what, what intrigued you enough to go? I want to do this in the first place. Cause I heard it in rehab. Like that's what it was, the stories. And it's like, Oh, have you ever done morphine? No. Oh, you have to do morphine. That's like, you know what I mean? Like that's like floating on a cloud. So it's like all these things that I had heard mm. and the pain pills, like I was having a hard time getting pain pills. The doctors had started catching on to me. My parents knew the pharmacies around here, knew the pharmacists. So they were like, Hey, Kenzie's doing this. So I'd go, I'd try and go and pick up my dad's pain pills. And I'd like open the bottle and take like three or four out, hoping he wouldn't know or hoping he wouldn't realize. He always realized, but I had no remorse for it. I, I, it was survival mode at that point. It was insane. So I knew that I was getting higher enough in my usage to where I was going to get caught because what was happening was I was taking out, you know, um, five cc's of morphine or fentanyl and replacing it with five cc's of saline solution. So they use morphine and fentanyl to put the animals to sleep when they're doing surgery. These animals started not going to sleep. Yeah. So they're trying to, you know, you put them on morphine and fentanyl and, and then you gas them, you put the trach tube down, but you first sedate them to a point to where they're relaxed enough to where you can put the trach tube down and put them on gas, which is going to keep them under longer. So I'm assisting in these surgeries, knowing that I have a purse with morphine and fentanyl in it and they're pulling up depending on their weight, of course, they're pulling up, say 1.5 cc's of a mix of drugs, morphine, ketamine, fentanyl, whatever it needs to be, propofol. They're injecting it into these animals and the animals are dozing off, but they're not getting to the point that they need to be. Did they ever operate on an animal before it was asleep? No, no. That's where my heart was going. I was like, no, (laughs) no, no. But the thing is, is like, so they're going under, they're going to sleep. But when you try and like open their mouth and stick a tube down their throat to get them on the gas, like they were holding their jaw shut. Like they still had enough control of their body to where we weren't able to innovate them to put them on the gas to get them all the way under. Mm-hmm. So that was, you know, 
And of course we have animals that were, um, hit by cars or pain medication after surgeries, things like that. And we couldn't get their pain under control. Not we, they. And so that was the point where I'm like, this is so wrong. And I knew it because I even tell my, my whole family knows everyone knows, like, I love animals more than I love humans. So for me to do that to an animal, like that's when I knew something is really wrong. And I've, I've crossed the line. It's no longer a recreational drug use at this point. Like I have crossed the line and I'm screwed and I can't go back. I don't know what to do. I'm stuck. I can't tell my family that I'm doing this again, but at this point it's all pain pills. It's all pain medication, morphine, fentanyl, um, Lortab, tramadol. So the point where, so I stopped doing that and I'm like, Hey, you've got to, you've got to just like bring it down a minute. You have to get yourself under control again. Um, so I started stealing, I started stealing tramadol. Um, and that was able, I was, so tramadol is something else that we put animals on and humans at this time. I don't believe it was like a, um, regulated drug. They didn't know it had addicting side effects to it or anything like that but it did. Um, so I'd start stealing tramadol. That is when I got caught ish, I guess you could say, um, at the vet clinic I was working at at the time, they started noticing that things were coming up missing or, or we were running out faster than we were prescribing. Mm -hmm. So I'm not really sure how the series of events happened, but someone said that I asked them for the keys to the lockbox, which has like the morphine and, uh, uh, fentanyl in it. And they're like, well, why do you need the keys? And I guess, and I don't remember this at all. It may or may not have happened, but I really don't remember it because usually they just had it on the counter and I'd like sneak it and pull it up really quick there. I never went to the lockbox and got it. The vet clinic I was working at had the lockbox, but they did not have a camera on the lockbox. So no one knew who was at the lockbox or when anyone was at the lockbox, which That's I think is layout. Right? Yeah. It was like it was completely around a corner on like a ledge or not a ledge, but it was like on a corner just hidden by the laundry room. And that's where the lockbox was like completely out of view with no cameras on it. Like, and I'm not like, it's completely my fault for, for doing that. But in my addict mind at the time, I'm like, well, you deserve this. You don't even have cameras. <laughs> like you're not even watching it. So something, and this was back in like, I want to say maybe 2010. Um, so they, somehow someone found out the police, I went into work into that vet clinic and the police were there and I'm like, Fuck. and I knew, I knew it was for me. Mm. So they interviewed me and they're like, you know, what was going on this time, this time. So essentially they, they don't have any footage. They don't have cameras. They don't have anything. 
everyone's fingerprints are on those bottles because the doctors had us go and pull up, you know, the, the drugs for the animals every day for multiple animals. So they couldn't get fingerprints off of it. So somehow they connected me to another vet clinic that I worked at, um, as far as the tramadol went. So the lead um, veterinary that owned this facility called me into his office and he goes, do you want to tell me what's going on? And of course I froze, played dumb. I'm like, what do you mean? And he's like, we know that you've been stealing tramadol and we're pretty sure that you've been stealing other things too. And my upbringing, it like deny, 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 deny. So I told him, absolutely not. There's no way that I'm going to fess up to this because I know it's going to be a felony. I'm going to end up in prison. Mm-hmm. So I just deny, deny, deny. And then he, um, he says, well, you have two options. You can either fess up to it and deal with the consequences, or you don't have to fast fess up to it, but today is your last day and you're leaving right now. And I said, that's fine. So they, they escorted me. I got all my stuff. I left. I was so scared that I was going to get caught. And when I walked out those doors, I was going to go home and there were going to be police waiting at my parents' house. I called my dad and I said, and, and at this point I'd probably been to rehab. I had been to rehab two or three more times for alcohol and, you know, just other things like that. Um, just so my parents thought, but it was more stealing pain pills from my dad, you know, just, just being absolutely out of control, going to the doctors. So was was that, were those follow-up times in rehab, were they voluntary? Some of them were, um, they were voluntary to the extent of, I knew I was going to lose the ones that I loved if I didn't get help. But so like my boyfriend say, did the, were they the ones that like, you got to go back to rehab? Like, how did you mm-hmm. go back? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It was very much like my boyfriend at the time that I met in my first rehab in 2005, he was, we started fighting. I got a DUI after the DUI. They were like, it's probably going to look good if you go to rehab. So it was things like that, where it was like me trying to get out of trouble. It was never me going to rehab. It was never me going to my parents and being like, I need help. It was me trying to get out of some situation that I had put myself in because of my drug use. So with your ex, so you met him the first time and did Mm -hmm. you guys start dating then? Yeah. So we started dating. Um, he'd always pursued me in rehab. He was like, you know, come let's, let's go. I've got a hot tub, blah, blah, blah. And I'd always shoot him down. I'm like, nope, nope, nope. And then finally one day I'm like, whatever, let's go. (laughs) So we started dating, um, in like shortly after actually like the day that we graduated rehab and we started dating and we were not separable from that point on for five years. I think there was one day when he had to go to, um, California for a business trip. That was the only day that I ever was away from him. So we had a extremely codependent relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, but the thing is, is he was seven years older than me. 
he was able to kick his addiction. Like he was good. He was able to drink like a normal person. He never touched meth or heroin or anything like that again. Um, And even to this day, I ran into him a while ago. He's, he's great. Like he's thriving. I don't know why he got it on his first shot. And I took so long. I think it's because I went in too early and I didn't hit something called rock bottom. My life was not destroyed enough at that point to quit. I was just trying to appease my parents. Okay. So you hadn't hit rock bottom yet. And it's also because one of my curiosities was, well, if you met him, did he kind of get you into the heavier drug use? But you said, no, he was like, I'm good. I don't want to do that stuff anymore. I'm changing my Mm -hmm. life. And the fact Mm -hmm. that he could drink normally, that's Mm -hmm. actually very surprising to me. Yeah. Yep. So he was able to, and that's one of the things, I guess my mom told me after we broke up that he'd always come to my mom and be like, why can't she just stop drinking? Because my drinking started causing a lot of issues in our relationship. Um, as far as fighting and things like that, like we'd go up to his cabin and drink for a weekend very heavily. And then I would, the next day I'd wake up just shaking and anxiety and depression, um, insecurities, things like that. And the only way I knew how to get rid of it was, you know, what do they call it? Um, like chase the dog's tail or something like that. I've so never heard of this. So I'm like, I want to no. fill this in, but I don't know the so, blank. And I'm, I'm using it wrong. The, no, the hair of the dog. I think it's the hair of the dog. It's where if you're hungover, you start drinking again to get rid of your hangover. Oh my gosh. That is like the tune of Dallas. I'm like, you guys get picked <laughs> up on a Sunday. I'll go to the farmer's market. People are over here. Bloody Mary's margaritas. I'm like, it's yes. 2 a.m. Yeah. What are you doing? They're trying to get rid of their hangover. <laughs> Ooh, it's hair of the dog. And I only hair know of the that dog. because I saw it at a gas station one time and I was yep. like, what is this? And they're like, it's a hangover yep. here. And I'm like, yep. 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 Which only, it only prolongs your hangover. It It's not a cure. And then that is how alcoholism starts mm. is you do that. And then you chase getting over that terrible feeling which is what I would do. So we'd go up to the cabin, we'd drink on a Friday and Saturday, Sunday, I would feel terrible because I had been like drinking vodka for two days straight. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I take a couple shots. It would make me sick. And this is like nine o'clock in the morning, but I take a couple shots and make me sick. I would throw up, I'd feel better. And then I'd go back to drinking. So that's how he's like, I don't understand why she just can't stop drinking. And my mom's like, she's an addict. So they have a term for us called poly users where I do not stick to one thing. Alcohol is not my thing. Uh, Pills are not my thing. I want it all. I will use whatever changes my frame of mind. I will use whatever gets me out of my anxiety, food, all of it. I will do anything to change my mental state to give me that dopamine hit. So that was the point where our relationship decided, really started disintegrating because um, he didn't get me anymore and I didn't get him. Like he had such issues with my drinking, but he wouldn't stop drinking. So that's where that relationship 
ended. And was it like a bad breakup? Were you sober for the breakup? I was never really sober. (laughs) So at this point, and like, just for clarity, you were always kind of on something to change Mm -hmm. your state. Yeah. Yep. So I would, I would assume at some point you just didn't even know who you were. Mm -mm. No, no. For years, years, I had no clue who I was. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And that's like, I'm still we'll get into it later on in the story because I, I definitely got into some harder drugs and things like that. But, um, I'd say within the past six years is finally, and I'm 35 now, um, within the past six years, I finally have discovered who I am, what I like to do, but all that time growing up, it was, what do you want me to be? What face do you want me to put on? What can I be for you? That'll make you love me. And that's, that was the chase for it. That's so disheartening, but this, cause I know you now. So I'm like, I can't believe like when you told me that on our call, I was like, what? (laughs) Yes. So you went through a separation and your family knew that you were an addict. Mm -hmm. So what was the next step for you? So the next step was, um, I still like, I'd go out and party, drink, whatever, things like that. Um, And this is where it gets into, this is where it gets ugly. Um, I had someone that I really trusted, really trusted, who thought that I went into rehab the first time for a heroin meth addiction, which I didn't. I went into rehab for pills. So this person reaches out to me and says, Hey, do you know where to get crystal, which crystal is methamphetamine? Mm -hmm. I had gone to, I had gone to school, um, with a guy who dropped out when he was 12 because he was a gang member and he was brought up in the gangs and his whole, that was his whole lifestyle. So he dropped out of school when he was 12 and his cousin had him start pushing um, cocaine and everything like that. Um, I went to rehab with him because it was court ordered for him. So I'm like, well, let me see, let me get a hold of some people. I'll see what I can do. Um, I, I remember exactly where I got the text message, exactly where I got you know, where that conversation happened with him. I was standing outside in my lawn and, and I remember texting his name's dopey. So I started texting dopey. Um, I, he didn't have any at that time. So this person was like, finally texted me back and he's like, Hey, I got some, he's like, do you want to come over? So I'm like, sure. And at this point I couldn't find anything to hit those those receptors to get me that high anymore. I was just surviving. I wasn't, I wasn't getting high anymore. Um, so I go over and I trust him. I, he knows what he's doing. (laughs) It's the first time I got shot up with meth Mm. and my life was absolutely destroyed from that point on. Um, I remember the feeling of it and it was the most amazing feeling I had ever experienced in my entire life. As far as what? 
Is it like um, a relaxation? Is it numbing? Oh no. Is it? It is. So it's going to get a little bit graphic. <laughs> okay. Like I, I think that vivid, like vivid storytelling is important so that people kind of understand how it can be so addicting because people like, yeah. have never gone there. Don't understand yeah. like why people continue to chase these things. Yeah. So, um, he, he put the needle in and shot me up with it and he counted down. He goes one, two, three, and my eyes rolled into the back of my head and I laid down and it was the most, like, if you've never had, so the closest thing I can describe it to is having the best orgasm of your life times a thousand. That is, yeah, that is what meth is. It's, and especially shooting up, I have never done meth before. And I just did it for the first time, the most intense way you can ever do it. Um, so it's, it's like a full body orgasm that lasts for minutes. So we went on a probably three day meth binge um me and him and I stayed over at his house the whole time he had to I don't know if it was like a a holiday weekend or whatever it was but he had to get off of it and go to work so of course like so meth keeps you up like it's an upper it keeps you awake you don't sleep so we have not slept for three days straight we're just shooting meth having sex, not eating. Cause you don't get hungry on meth. Um, so he finally gets off of it and he sleeps, you know, for, for probably like 24 hours straight. And I'm like, I need to find this drug. This is my, this is my drug. This is what I've been searching for. This has given me the best feeling out of anything I have ever done. So I get in touch with people. I get in touch with Dopey. Um, Dopey's got some, but he doesn't have enough. So I go into an area. I literally blindly go into an area and I know what drug addicts look like, you know? So I go into an area within my city and start just like asking complete strangers in a roundabout way if they have meth. So that's where I start buying meth. Um, Dopey at this point, the kid who I went to, um, junior high with that dropped out when he was 12, like we get back in contact. I start hanging out with him more because he's selling everything. Um, so we start hanging out every single day. My parents are noticing that I'm not sleeping. I'm agitated. I'm dropping weight like crazy. Like I'm not eating at all. I'm staying up for five days straight. I'm never coming home. I'm wearing long sleeves in the summer, like to hide the track marks on my arms from shooting up. Um, so my parents start to start to notice something's going on. They search my room. They find the needles, all this stuff. I go back to rehab again. Um, this time it was a little more serious. Um, and I knew because at that point, that high that I got the first time that was no longer there. I, I got to a point where I was shooting up meth so frequently that I, 
had to do it to stay awake. I had to do it to feel normal. I started functioning on it, which is not, and I was researching how to use meth and still be a functional human. Like, how can I do this? And I don't have to do it every day. How can I do this? And I don't have to do it every two hours. How can I make this recreational use? How can I bring this back to what it was in the beginning? And that was, that's where I knew I'm like, I've, I've reached the point that of the people I went to rehab with, like, oh, this is, this is addiction. Like, this is actually what, what people are describing as rock bottom that I have never experienced before because I wasn't able to hold a job at that time because my mind was so messed up and so spinning because it is a stimulant. I was going a million miles an hour. Um, and people knew people knew like, you don't, you have ticks. Um, so I was always flossing my teeth. My, my tick was my teeth flossing. So I was always flossing my teeth. Um, some people pick at their skin. I never became a picker, so I didn't look like that, but I was dropping meth or I was dropping weight like crazy. I wasn't sleeping. I was becoming paranoid. I thought the cops were following me all the time. I thought my parents were in on this conspiracy to, to get me into rehab or ship me off somewhere, get me into prison. Um, I was afraid of texting people, calling people because I thought my phone was wired just absolutely insane out of your mind stuff. Like I would look in the walls to see if there were any holes to see if there was a camera that my parents had placed or like the cops had placed that people were recording me or watching me. Like it turned me insane, but I could not get off of it. I, no amount of this is misery equated to your misery will stop if you stop. Like I got it, but I couldn't do it. Um, so I went to an in-facility rehab. It was an all-women's rehab and stayed there for, I want to say it was two months. And at that point I had put on weight. I had gotten healthy back. My hair had start growing again. Um, I was eating I was sleeping. The delusions went away. The paranoia went away. So in my head at that point, I'm like, once I got out of rehab, um, there became a point where I became complacent and life started to become too easy for me. So I'm like, oh, I got this. And I'd been warned because I had already been to rehab probably five, six times before this complacency is your worst enemy. Once you say you have it, you will soon relapse after that. I knew this, but I thought I was the exception to the rule as most addicts and alcoholics do. So I got back in touch with dopey. I'm like, I've researched it because I research everything. I researched how to have it under control this time. So I knew I was going to, I knew I was going to be okay. I can do it this way. And I'm going to do it. Like these people say that they did it and I'll just be able to do it on the weekends and it'll be fun again. Um, so I got in touch with him, started using again. And I'd say within a week, I was back to where I was 
before I went into the all women's rehab. Um, my parents started noticing again that something was wrong. And I, my parents even said, they're like, if you use one more time, if you bring drugs into our house one more time, you are getting kicked out. Like we are done. Um, before this, I, I remember my mom pleading with me. She was literally curled in a ball in our kitchen, sobbing for me not to go out the door because she knew I was going to go and get drugs. And I looked at her dead in the face and said, I can't do this. And I left and I didn't come back for like two or three days. Like that is how strong the addiction is. Is I saw after rehab and I'm assuming Mm -hmm. that you had to go through like a detox and all of that. Yeah. As soon as you got out, you were like, I need to do that again. It's like the only thing I can think of it as is like childbirth. Like, you know how when you have a kid, they always say, I don't have kids. But what I hear is like, you forget the pain. You forget the pain that you went through for the child. And so it's like, that's why you have like your body just doesn't remember how painful it was or how traumatic it was. Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, yeah, let's have another kid. Then you're like, oh my God, that was so painful. I remember that. That's the only thing that I can figure out what it was is my brain would not remember the depression and the anxiety and the paranoia and the despair. So I wanted it back. Like I completely forgot what it was like to want to kill myself. Mm. I completely forgot what it was like to not see the light, to look outside and not see the beauty of anything. It's, I, I don't know. My brain was just, it's, it's an addict brain. It's just, you have to have it. So when you went through the detox, do you remember that? Like how I've only seen movies. So like, I'm just mm-hmm. picturing like, you know, some type of film work, but it's, I mean, every single thing that I've seen along with like how people mm-hmm. detox is like, it's grueling. Like people yeah. freak out. Yeah. Yeah. So at this point I had not gone through that type of detox yet. I had gone through muscle aches, feeling like I have the flu, um, not really throwing up um, severe anxiety, severe depression. Like that's just a normal thing with detox is no matter what you're coming off of, you're going to have anxiety. You're going to have depression because you're going to dopamine hits, right? It's mm-hmm. like, you can't get that happy, right? Cause yeah. you've already, you've saturated those receptors so heavy yep. that They're now it's like, done. there's no stimulus that's going to make yep. you happy. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. So however far the pendulum swings one way, it's going to swing back the other way. So you take meth and you go all the way to, to a thousand. And then when you come down, you have to go all the way back to negative a thousand before you hit zero. Mm. So you go into the worst depression you've ever experienced in your life. Um, the worst body aches, the worst anger, the worst anxiety, the worst paranoia, Um, and I, I did go through that, but mine lasted, um, a short amount of time because I wasn't adding on other stimulants or other drugs like heroin or anything at that time. I was just doing meth 
Um, and then when I was coming down from meth, I'd use alcohol to cope with the anxiety of coming down from meth. Um, what really changed. And when I really went through the, the absolute rock bottom is when my parents found the drugs in my room and my mom came to me and said, you need to pack your bag. You have 15 minutes. I'm taking you to the homeless shelter. I had nowhere to go nowhere. I was pleading with my mom and she had had enough. Absolutely had had enough. Um, so I literally, and, and at that point, meth rage, um, meth addicts tend to get very angry very quickly. So meth rage kicked in and I was like, fine. So I just like threw a bunch of stuff in a bag and she drove me to the local homeless shelter and dropped me off. And so that's where I spent a couple of weeks, um, sleeping in the homeless shelter at night. Uh, I didn't have a phone at the time. So I literally became friends with local homeless people. And that's how I got my drugs. I remember the second night that I was at the homeless shelter, I was making my bed. It was like the little mats that they put on the ground and they, they give you a sheet and a blanket and a pillow. So I was putting my, um, my sheet over the mat that they had given me. And there were two other homeless girls that were across from me and I was strung out at the time. So I was like making sure that it was very neat. Like there weren't any wrinkles in it or anything like that. And I remember the two homeless girls on the other side of me looking up and she looks at her friend and she's like, oh yeah, she's on meth. And I just look up and was like, cause at this point, I didn't think that anyone could tell is the delusion that I was telling myself. So that was the first point that I was like, people know what I'm on. Like I'm not hiding it well anymore. And so I go to bed at that point, wake up, go out with my little friend that I've got. That was like a 70 year old man who was also homeless who had been homeless for years, but he was like teaching me the way of the streets. He was protecting me. Um, cause as I'm sure, you know, being a homeless female is not the safest. So he was my little protector. Um, and I'd go and he'd give me drugs and things like that. Um, and I got to a point where my brother called me, I had one contact and I wasn't allowed to talk to any of my family. I wasn't allowed to talk to my mom or my dad. I had one family contact and that was my brother. I remember my brother calling me and I was on the corner of like 25th street in downtown Ogden. And my brother goes, what do you want? What do you need? What can I do for you right now? And the only thing that I could come up with was I need a shower. I want a warm shower. That's all I wanted. I just wanted to be clean. And the fact that I had come from the upbringing that I was in to literally the only thing I could want is a warm shower. I was in misery, absolute misery. So this gentleman that I met the first time in rehab that I'm now with, um, 
he was connected to me at that time as well. So we were talking and things like that. And he was like texting and seeing if I was okay or, you know, whatever. He knew what I had gone through because we had been essentially friends and hanging out and whatever since, since 2005, the day I met him in rehab. Um, so I told him, I go, I, I was going into another rehab after that I had decided I was done. I couldn't do it anymore. So I was going into another rehab, but I had to have, I think it was like two or three days clean and I couldn't get it. I could not stop using for two or three days to get into this rehab. And so I told him his name's Marshall. I told Marshall, I go, if I don't stop, I'm going to kill myself. If I don't have somewhere to sleep other than a homeless shelter, I'm going to kill myself. And I remember him saying, if you don't use for the next 24 hours, I will bring you in and you can sleep at my house. So that was like the light at the end of the tunnel. I was like, okay, I can do this. So I didn't use for 24 hours. He brought me in, um, took me to his house and I slept on his couch for like, I think two days straight. Mm. Like it was insane. Um, after that, I got a call from rehab that I was finally going to be able to be accepted. And that's where I went to my last rehab. Um, now, when I say my last rehab, I don't mean that's the rehab that worked. I mean, that's the last one that I knew I wasn't going to do it again. Because even after that experience, I went back to using heroin. Um, at that point, though, I was very established with dopey. So I didn't have to be homeless. I didn't go back to my parents' house. My parents were like, you don't get to live here anymore. Yeah. Uh, which I totally understand. I didn't want to live there. Um, we had had a codependent relationship. I was stealing things from my dad. So actually after that rehab is when everything spiraled out of control. I started to have gang affiliations. Um, and things went south really quick. What happened next? Like, that's my curiosity. So, um, girl, why didn't you stop? Like, I'm just like, he opened the door. So Marshall was like, listen, bitch, you say, you stay sober for 24 hours. You're like, I can do this for 24 hours. You do that. You sleep mm-hmm. for three days. So I'm assuming you've gone through some type of withdrawal detox at this point. Yes. So at this point, yeah. Yeah. So that's was that where- the driving force to use again? You're like, I hate this feeling. Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. You use to get rid of the feeling. Like that's, yeah, you used to get rid of the feeling. Absolutely. So what happens next is, um, I, I hook back up with dopey and everything and start to get into, I'm this white girl hanging out with a Hispanic gang member around his entire family, around all the other gang members. Um, it was a life that I have never experienced before. Like it was a whole new level. 
and it was exciting and it was scary. Um, there are times where I would like say things or I would do things and Dopey would have to, uh, they call it teach you a lesson in essence. Um, so he was like, I never prostituted or anything like that. Like, I'm so blessed that I didn't like, I'm so blessed that I found that little homeless man who would give me my drugs without expecting anything in return from me other than my companionship. Um, I never prostituted when I was in the gangs, but I saw a lot of it. Um, so dopey was essentially my handler or my keeper. He was the one who had to answer to everyone else because I was a white girl. So I was, I, he'd take me around places. Um, you sit there and you are seen and you are to be seen. You are to be looked at and you are to be, uh, desired. You don't open your mouth. You don't talk back. You don't talk unless you're spoken to. I am not that way. <laughs> so I had to learn when you go into these houses and you go into these trap houses and you go around these other gang members, don't talk unless you get talked to. And if you do talk, you're going to pay the consequences. And those consequences are, you're going to get beat. Um, so there were a few times where Dopey would have to teach me a lesson or he'd always say, I'm doing this to you so that someone else doesn't do it to you because he knew at the extent that he could beat me. But if he let someone else beat me, they might beat me too much and it might put me in the hospital or it might really hurt me. So he'd beat me enough to teach me a lesson. And it's, it's so fucked up to even say but that was him caring about me. And I know I, even to this day, I know he didn't let anyone else beat me when I stepped out of line because he cared about me, but that's the way gang members care. Well, about I think male. I actually, for, for an interesting reason that I don't need to get into, like I do actually understand that very much so, because it's like, if he is the person that's doing what he needs to do, he can control the level of violence that is associated with that. So yes. it's like, I have to set an example. Yeah. He can't expose himself as being a bitch or having feelings for you, which would compromise him. And yep. so it's like, I have to set an example here, but yep. I'm not going to injure her to the point of, of no return. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. 100%. That's, that's what it was. Um, it, at that point, like I remember the house that we were in, everything like that. I remember it, at this point, like I would have to shoot up multiple times a day. I was doing speed balls, which is meth and heroin. I was selling it. We were going, we were driving to Salt Lake, getting, you know, our stash to, to sell. Um, I'd be their, their driver to go to places to rob or go to places to tax. So if you ever front someone any drugs and they don't give you the money or they don't give you whatever in return is 
gang members, you have to tax them. So I'd be their drive to, or I'd be their ride to go and break into these people's houses, beat them up, take whatever they wanted is taxing them. And then we drive away or I'd be the driver because I was essentially the only one with a car. I'd be the driver to go to this spot and do this and this spot or rob these people or, you know, things like that. Um, and I did get away with a lot because of the way that I look, I don't look like I'm a meth and heroin addict. I don't look like I'm going to put you in danger. I don't look like I'm going to rob you. And I knew that. And I used that to my advantage. Um, it was, it was absolutely miserable. I was at this point, maybe like 140 pounds or so. Um, I started because I was, I got hooked on alcohol to try and get off of pills and, and meth and all that stuff. Um, and alcohol kind of put me up and balloons me. So I started at probably like 190 pounds, 200 pounds, just from alcohol and food addiction dropped down to 140 just from doing meth and, um, staying up seven days at a time, just absolutely insane stuff. The breaking point of it though, where life turns around. So we'll get to a happy thing now. where life turns around is, and it's, it's kind of sick, two things. Um, I was sitting in the back seat of a car that he was driving and there was another gang member in the front seat and I was, it was night and I was looking out the window and I hear, I didn't know they had a gun with them or anything like that, but I hear three shots fired out of our car. So they rolled down the window fired three times and I did not flinch. It did not scare me at all because at that point I was around enough violence and enough gang fights and enough gunfire to where it was just like, you were conditioned to it. Yeah. Yep. I was completely fine with it. And at that point, I remember, I think it was like 15, 20 minutes later, like something, I don't know what it was. But something inside of me was like, this is not normal. Normal people don't have this reaction to when someone rolls down a window and shoots. I don't know what we shot at. I was just, I was just along for the ride. And so at that point, I'm like, I have to do something. And that was the first time since my addiction started to where I said, this is not okay. I need to change. Like I cannot live my life like this anymore. So along those same, along that same timeline, there had been another, um, gang member who tried to, who tried to have a relationship with me. And I didn't want one because he was from a rival gang. I knew that if I knew that it was a test, I knew that if I pursued this relationship, I was going to get tested because Dopey had done it before where he had put a rival gang member up against me to see my loyalty. Mm. So, and I failed and I got beat the shit out of. So at this point, I'm like, nope, this is a test. I'm not going to do it. 
little did I know that this other gang member was who was supplying us heavily with the drugs that we were selling in our area. And I should have done whatever he wanted me to do because he had that much power. So like I failed this test too, but I thought, I thought I was winning. I thought I was doing the right thing (laughs) and I was not. And so he tried to rape me because I wouldn't go on with, with the relationship. Um, I fought back. And at that point there was someone in the house that I was living in that I got loud and he, he left. Um, that was the worst thing. I, that was the worst and best thing I could have done because what happened after that was I insulted him. So it came back on dopey. So at this point, um, and there's, there's other things that went into it too. Dopey did have, he's known me since we were 12. Um, he had feelings for me. He, uh, felt like he needed to protect me, which I completely understand. Um, but I told Dopey what happened. He goes, Hey, why did you do this? He's like, you got us in trouble now. He goes, now I have to teach you a lesson. And so I told him what happened. He got mad because he was protective of me. So he went and confronted this guy and said, Hey, this is what she says happened. Is this how it went down? Because you're telling me a different story than what she's telling me. Of course he says, no, that's not how it happened. Um, so Dopey comes back at me and says, Hey, you understand the situation I'm in. He's saying one thing, you're saying another thing. He has more power. So I am then green lighted by a straight out of Mexico gang member, which means when you're green lighted, it means if you see her, beat her up, kill her, punish her. Um, so Dopey tells me, he's like, hey, they green lighted you, which great, I'm gonna die. So it was it was, there was no question in my mind at that point, um, what was going to happen. And Dopey's like, you need to lay low for a while. Like you cannot be seen around this area. If they find you, you are dead. So I tell my parents what had happened. Um, they, and I'm not even sure how I got into this man's house. Um, I had known a, an, another gentleman who lived in the mountains for a while up in, um, mountain green, um, kind of like a park city area. If when you went there, um, so it's mountain green up here and Marshall actually introduced me to him. That's how I knew. Yeah. Marshall introduced me to him a few years before this and we had kept in touch and he had a room. So I asked him if I could stay there with him. I think actually Marshall even asked him as well, like, Hey, Kenzie's in trouble sort of thing. Um, so I went up there and out of sight, out of mind, stayed out of the gangs. Um, dopey would come up and bring me my drugs. Cause I still couldn't stop at this point. So they never All followed I- him to find you. Mm-mm. No, 
and that's, yeah, I don't know why they, I don't think it was like, I wasn't a huge, I hadn't offended them to the point of like that. Like she has it was like, guy. Yeah. yeah. It was like a, she fucked with me. So if you see her, fuck her up. Yes, exactly. Okay. It wasn't like a revenge sort of thing. It was like a, I was a small fish, but I had to be taught a lesson. It wasn't like I stole their stash or anything like that. It was like, you are no longer allowed in our lifestyle or in our area because you cause trouble. Mm. So if we see you in our lifestyle or in our area, we will, we will do what we need to do to get rid of you. Got it. Sort of a thing. Um, so at that point, like my life had become so miserable and I wasn't sleeping and the paranoia was in Sane. Like you see those little illusions where people are like opening their blinds, peeking out, you know, tweaker style. I was to that point at this point. I was out of my mind and I could not, my body would crash. I was shooting up probably um, every two to three hours at this point, staying up six to seven days at a time crashing for two days, um, eating. I was actually at the end of it. I was able to eat. Like I did, my body got so used to meth that I was able to keep food down at this point, And I was able to get like my hunger back. Um, it was not giving me the euphoric feeling anymore. It was literally just survival. It was you have to do this to live because everything in my body was saying, if you don't do this, you're going to die. Like I had to do it. It's, it's like being chased by a mountain lion. Like if you don't do it, you are going to die. Um, so at that point I knew like that was my rock bottom. There was no light at the end of the tunnel. There was no happiness. There was nothing. So I told my parents that I needed help. Um, and that was the absolute first time that I ever went to my family because I wanted out all the other times I was trying to get out of a situation that I had put myself in, um, as far as like legal or relationship wise, things like that. I was trying to always make something else better that was outside of me. I didn't care. I was just showing face at that point. Um, so at this point I, I actually needed, I needed to get out. I needed the help and I wasn't in a relationship. I wasn't, you know, there wasn't any outside force really driving my desire to, to quit drugs, except for the despair that I was in. So, um, we look at some, some facilities and some contacts and things like that. Um, and I end up moving to Washington state and going into a, uh, it's called an Oxford house. It's essentially a house where, um, felons and drug addicts get out of jail and will go and live together. Um, so we had some people that we knew up in Washington who happened to be driving through Utah at around the same time that this Oxford house had an opening. So they come and pick me up. Um, one day we decide, you know, we're doing this. 
I call Marshall. I tell him like, Hey, I'm moving to Washington. He comes and says goodbye to me. He's essentially the only person at that time outside of my family that knows where I am or what I'm doing. Um, I didn't tell Dopey. I didn't tell anyone else. Um, so I say goodbye to Marshall. I say goodbye to my family. And then Mary and Monty is their name. So Mary and Monty are driving up. I remember I have like a green little suitcase and that is all I brought with me. That's all I had. Um, I packed a few clothes. I didn't even bring a blanket. I didn't have a pillow. I packed a suitcase. I had been off of meth for a day and they took me on a 10 hour car ride to Washington and dropped me off at an Oxford house. Um, those, so that is where I really went into withdrawals because you're actually supposed to be like, I think it's like, you're supposed to have a week clean or something like that before you go into an Oxford house. Mm. And I told him I did, but I didn't. Oh God. <laughs> so I'm in a new state alone going through heroin and meth withdrawals in an Oxford house. And luckily the girls there, um, I didn't know any of them, obviously I'd never been to Washington, um, or this part of Washington before. I didn't know anyone up there besides Mary and Monty who lived an hour away from me. Um, so the girl supported me through that cause they get it, you know, they, they get the withdrawal symptoms and everything like that. Um, and at that point is where my life really started turning around because I didn't have anyone to support me if I did anything wrong. Mm. I didn't have my parents there. I didn't have Marshall there. I didn't have dopey there. I was in a state alone. I had to fend for myself. And that's where like, I pulled myself up from my bootstraps and was like, okay, like this is, we're getting our shit together. And that's where my life really started turning around where I finally had to support myself. And that was in 2016. So do you feel like, and this is just where my brain goes on a, on a principal level, like people that struggle with addictive personalities, whether like disregarding what it might be as far as the entity, mm-hmm. do you feel like what drives people to overcome that addiction to that stimulus is knowing that the only thing that they have to fix it is them. Like, do you feel as though knowing you are in Utah, knowing that like, I can call them if I need them. Yeah. Kept you in that kind of spiral where it was like, now you're fully removed. You have nothing. And it's like, Mm -hmm. well, if I do that, I will literally have nothing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's one thing like, and I've known this, no one, no amount of anyone loving me or no amount of me loving anyone is going to get me out of my addiction. It had to be me. I had to want it. And up until this point, I had never wanted it because I never knew the consequences. I didn't have to have it. My parents would always save me. Mm. They, they had saved me for years And I knew that like, I can do whatever I can get into any sort of trouble I want to. And at that time, you're not thinking that, but like, subconsciously maybe. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So do you feel like, 
Um, and we're probably going to have to do a part two of like the, the other side, cause it's very long, <laughs> the but sober side. <laughs> yeah. Like how you came, how you overcame all that into who you are now. Mm-hmm. But, um, my question on that thought is, do you think that if your parents kind of really exiled you very early yes. and were like, we're not fucking helping you, you've dug this grave, you need to figure it out. Like, if mm-hmm. you think that they really cut you off, do you think that that almost would have prevented not only the gravity of it, but the duration of it. You know, and I say this all the time, my mom kicking me out and literally driving me to a homeless shelter is the best thing that she could have ever done for me. I was so mad at her at the time. I swore to my dad, I was never going to talk to her again. She was the worst person in the world. My mom's always been my best friend. But in that space, how dare you abandon me? How dare you abandon your drug addict child who'd yeah. stolen from you, lied to you? Because you don't see that it's out of love. You don't it's like, see if it. I keep saving her, she'll never save herself. And it's yeah. like, yeah, yeah I, I very much carry that lens. And a lot of people mm-hmm. that have struggled with their relationships with people that love them, they mm-hmm. tend to always make situations about themselves. Yep. Instead of looking at how do you think that hurts the person that loves you unconditionally to see like, yep. that, you know? Yep. Um, so I, yep. I find that to be a very interesting perspective, but that's, that was yeah. a big, big curious point that I had. Yeah, absolutely. My mom, I, I tell people anytime I share my addiction story, that's the main thing that really turned my life around and gave me the perspective of it. Now, did I get clean from that point on? No, but it showed me what my life was going to be like if I didn't start taking the steps in the right direction to turn my life around. Like I saw people who had been homeless for years, women without teeth, women that, you know, just whoring themselves out, prostituting, things like that. And it's like, this is your life if you don't get your shit together. Yeah. So absolutely being my, my mom putting me out on the streets was the best thing that anyone could have done for me. And she did it completely out of love. And my mom will even tell you to this day, like that was not the hardest thing she did. The Mm -hmm. hardest thing she's ever done was putting me in a car with Monty and Mary and sending me to another state. And that was you know, that was amazing as well. And it's that- probably because she knew that if ever something hit the fan, you would call and she would be there. Like she knew if pushed yeah. to shove and you were actually yeah. in danger because yeah. she loved you. And because it was so hard, she's like, well, at least she's in close proximity. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. But I was, I was a plane, uh, you know, a plane ride away at yeah. that point. There's no way she could get to me in 15, 20 minutes if something went wrong that is what I needed. I needed mommy and daddy to not save me anymore. I needed their social power, not to get me out of whatever I had gotten myself into. No one in Washington knew me except, you know, Mary and Monty, and they didn't know me that well. Other than that, I was completely alone. I had no one to save me other than myself. Mm. And with addiction, that is the only way to get out of it. No one can save you. You have to save yourself in alcoholism, in drug addiction, in whatever it is. 
it was, I, I don't, I don't know who I would be today if that didn't happen. Like it was, it was a godsend. Absolutely. It made me who I am today. I would not take anything back from my past, nothing. So I'm so much more compassionate and loving and understanding. And my family is too. My family is very straight edge, religious, go to church, all this other stuff. And now they, they realize what addiction is. They're not, you know, putting their nose up to people anymore because they saw an actual family member go through it. That's incredible. So we will end this episode here, but we're going to have to have you back to finish the story and (laughs) really get to the other side, get to the good part. Right? Yes. There's so much good after that. There really is. There's so much good. Awesome. So my life is absolutely amazing now. I would not change it for the world. I really wouldn't. It's amazing. I can't wait for you to share that. But until next time, guys, uh, I will link her information below. If you guys ever want to reach out, um, follow her, give her some some kudos for this episode. And I do believe genuinely this will not only give you some insight onto an incredible story, like I feel like this could be a movie, but also <laughs> like that sometimes the hardest moments of your life are actually the best things that ever happened mm-hmm. to you. And I think that that's something that you can all take away from this. So Kenzie, thank you so much for your time today. And we'll thank have you back you. soon. Thank you so much.